I am joined by David Hay, co-chief investment officer and partner at Evergreen, and also the author of the Haymaker newsletter on Substack. David, great to have you here. How are you doing? Pretty good, Jack, for an old guy. <laughs> well, I- I'm doing okay for a, a young guy. Uh, let's see, David, we have to start this interview talking about interest rates. I mean, they are absolutely exploding higher. They exploded higher in 2022, but they they moderated shortly after the November Fed meeting, a period of, of calm. But it now appears that's a calm before the storm. Uh, the two years at an all-time high, we might get as high as 5.5, 5.75% on the Fed funds rate. That's what the market's pricing in. Just just share your your, your thoughts. You, you know, is, it, is this sustainable? I don't think long term, but I do think they're probably going higher near term. Uh, so it's, you know, there's, there's a pretty intense debate about are interest rates truly high in real terms? And that's, of course, a very difficult uh, calculation because, you know, which inflation rate do you use? If you use the you know CPI, you go, well, hey, you know, real rates are actually negative, especially on the longer end of the curve. But if you use more of a normalized CPI, not even the Fed's 2%, but 3 to 4 you know, then you are starting to get some real interest rates for the first time in many, many years. But the reality is they've gone up substantially, as you pointed out. I mean, the 10-year got down around 340 not too long ago, and it's back up over four today. That's a huge move. The two years had an even bigger move off the bottom. And, you know, there's a lot of upward pressure, and it's globally, too. It's not just in the U.S. So rising interest rates were a big deal. I think the Fed and the markets have kind of got fooled by that January data, whether it was the jobs number, which, as you know, was very strong, over 500,000 new jobs supposedly created. I put the emphasis on supposedly and very strong retail sales. And I put the emphasis on supposedly in that case, too, because I just don't think the economy is as strong as, as those numbers indicate. So that's kind of fooling the Fed into feeling like they need to be tighter than they are already. And, uh, you're, you know, you're seeing the financial markets react negatively, which in turn creates more tightening, right? When asset prices fall, that's a form of tightening. So today we had inflation uh, come out of Europe at 5.6%. And some people will say, oh, well, that's just because of natural gas and energy. No, that's core, excluding energy and, and food. So the energy crisis it can no longer be pointed at as a sole culprit for inflation in Europe. That argument to me is done. And... Uh, yeah, and so as expected, European interest rates are exploding higher, and we have well, we have this phenomenon where oh, uh, I can get three year on the German Bund. Oh, I'm going to sell my Treasury, so now Treasury yields go higher. Now the Bank of Japan has to you know finally capitulate. I mean, do you think that we are in a period of secularly rising interest rates? In other words, will the bond you know, bull market from 1980 to 2020 uh, is that over? You know, the, the trend line is is finally broken. And the next 10 years are, you know, interest rates are going to be high, 10%, who knows? Or is this just a blip and nope, we're going to negative rates again? Well, complex, but great questions. And uh, I, I want to preface my response by saying that basically from 1981, when I've been in the business a couple of years, up until kind of the summer 2000, I was, uh, 2020, sorry, right after the pandemic. So for that 40 years, basically, I was a pretty much always a bond market bull. Sometimes I would become apprehensive late in an economic cycle and shorten duration. But whenever you got an inverted yield curve, which we've had a number of over that 40-year period, I would extend maturities. I'm not doing that right now because I do think this time is probably different. So that's, you know, and, and I guess the question is, why do I think it's different? I think it's different because of the fact that we could have interest rates rise during a recession. And the reason I think that could happen is because there is a, you know, already the, the federal deficit is erupting. 
So, and you've got the Fed going from buying a trillion dollars a year of treasuries to selling a, tr a trillion dollars a year of treasuries. So that's a $2 trillion delta right there. Then you've got foreign central banks selling. You've got the Social Security Trust Fund that needs to sell because they're no longer getting enough revenues to pay out, you know, to cover the payouts. So you have all these different sources of supply coming at the same time. And that's why you think you, you could actually have, you know, rising rates, even as the economy goes into a downturn, which is very unusual. Now, it may not happen as kind of a controversial call, but there's definitely a risk of that. I do think that we are in a period of, of long-term higher inflation, stickier inflation. And I think that's going to keep interest rates higher for longer than a lot of the, the bulls would like to see. It's kind of a messy situation. I mean, it, to me, it looks stagflationary. I'm old enough to remember the 1970s. I bought my first stock in 1971. I got in the business in the late 70s. So I remember that period very vividly. And this reminds me a lot of that, except it's in many ways worse because we have so much more debt in the system now than we had then. So it's a, it's a pretty rough setup, frankly. And you, know, you said inflation is going to be stickier. Why do you think that? And you know, what do you think the, the cause of inflation is? Is it uh, supply chain issues? Uh, is it money printing? Both? Neither? What do, what do you think? And, and how does that affect your view on whether you know, inflation will be sticky, which you said you think it will? Well, certainly the reason inflation went absolutely ballistic, and that was something I started saying in late 2020, early 2021, is that we were going to get a lot of inflation. My main reason for that was because, alluding to what you touched on, we were actually invoking modern monetary theory, MMT. It was different than with QEs 1, 2, and 3. In the COVID uh, bailouts, we were the Fed was printing up trillions from their magical money machine, but the government was spending it. They were sending it out to people, which was radically different than what had happened after the Great Recession and the global financial crisis. So that combined with you know legitimate shortages, so you created all this money, all this demand, and then you restricted supply. No wonder we had just you know breakout inflation. Money supply at one point was up forty percent in a you know, relatively short period of time, not much over a year. So the money supply absolutely exploded. A lot of people said, "Oh no, we're not going to get inflation." As you know, Jay Powell said transitory, and it turned out to be anything but transitory. And now you've got you know the supply chains largely opened up, not fully but largely, and you've got falling prices for a lot of goods, and yet you've still got you know fairly high inflation. And that's because it's now gone from goods inflation, which was primarily right after the pandemic, into services inflation. And so people are getting wage increases, even in Japan, of all places, you know, biggest wage increases in decades in Japan. So that's when you get this kind of self-reinforcing inflationary cycle. But I also think one of the really underappreciated drivers of inflation long term is what I call the great green energy transition, which is this shift from higher energy, higher density energy like fossil fuels and nuclear, though we should probably come back to nuclear because that's that's uh, seeing a renaissance. But trying to go to renewables, renewables have a place for sure, but they are intermittent and they do have less energy density and they're more expensive. So, you know, we're, we I think we're going to see, I believe for quite a while, we're in the third energy crisis, the first two being in the 1970s. I think we're still in that energy crisis. I think Europe's going to have another series of shortages coming up. So I think that's going to create kind of secular sticky inflation there. But you've also got reshoring. I mean, just look what's going on here with Taiwan Semiconductor and all the pressure they're under because they're they're admitting that with this new plant they're building in Arizona, their costs are going to be much higher. And that's just one example. So I think there's a number of, you know, secular, structural, long-term, whatever term you want to use, uh, inflation drivers out there right now. 
Yeah, so much there. So just on the, the money printing point, uh, the, the facts are the facts, whether people call it money printing, is, it's a semantic term, but you know, the Federal Reserve uh, expanded their balance sheet a lot in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, uh, QE1, 2, 3. But, and people were saying, oh my God, this is going to cause so much inflation. It didn't. And, and the price of gold exploded. It, uh, it, it didn't last because the government wasn't using the enhanced liquidity in the bond market to issue trillions of dollars of bonds to you know, give it, send it out in, in checks. Um, so it didn't, it didn't really create a lot of inflation. On the margin, maybe, maybe a little bit, you know, basis point here, basis point there. But yeah, it, there was a lot of money printing in 2020. And it wasn't just the Federal Reserve. It was the government uh, printing money, borrowing it, and then borrowing it from you know, JP Morgan, primary dealers who were then selling it back to the Federal Reserve. So, you know, uh, people can draw their own conclusions. And then the commercial banks as well. They printed a lot of money because loans would get forgiven uh, uh, under under PPP. And uh, you know, you're still see- seeing ads for, uh, are you a small business owner uh, who you know, didn't lay people off in 2020? Like you can get a, a tax rebate or, you know, we're talking like many thousands of dollars. Tell us about the, the fiscal fiscal nature because, you know, uh, government, U- the U.S. government uh, deficits are very large. Uh, they were large ten years ago. They're even more, even more large. People said they were unsustainable then, and they so far have proven to be unsustainable. Why are they unsustainable now? Well, I think it's a fiscal funding crisis that, because we have the uh, world's reserve currency and the Fed's got their magical money machine, we will not default. So I'm not saying we will default. I mean the the debt ceiling thing. I you know that that is a. I, mean, I guess it could create a technical default on a short term basis, but I think the political pressure will be so severe that they will figure out another, you know, can kicking type of maneuver. But I, I think in, you're right that this, these deficits have been going on for a long time. And, uh, you, you know, the, the government's, the federal government's ability to, to get by with their various tricks is pretty amazing. But we've never seen this set of circumstances. Just like we were saying earlier, we never saw, even though the Fed had created a lot of money before the pandemic, it was at a slower rate for one thing spread out over many years instead of Basically, over a year, year and a half, where they printed up, whipped up about four trillion, you know, pretty much dollar for dollar with what the government's uh, deficit spending was at that time. So the Fed was literally doing debt monetization, and you're exactly right that it was different because they were sending out these trillions of dollars of stimulus checks to people, and you know, a lot of that money got spent. Not all, not all of it. There's still a decent amount of money that's on the sidelines. That you know, the consumer savings rate has come down, but the stock of savings is still quite high. So you you know you had all that money in the system and it was getting spent. So that's why we got the real inflation this time as opposed to before. It was really asset inflation. That's where those, you know, like the, the ocean liners, QE1, QE2, QE3, and actually unofficially QE4 in September 2019, those mostly kind of found their way into real estate and stock prices. But this one was truly an implementation of modern monetary theory. And I mean, I was writing about that back in 2019 in my newsletter saying, we're, we're going to do this at some point. I didn't know it was going to be so soon. <laughs> but when we do, the Achilles heel is going to be inflation. And sure enough. And I think a core tenet of modern monetary theory, which I'd love to discuss with you, is about that. It's saying, oh, you know, people are saying that we borrowed a trillion dollars and that's a problem. It's not an inherent problem. We're, we're creator of our, our own currency. It's only a problem when inflation is here. And I actually found that argument very convincing. Uh, however, now there are people who, you know, the same people who taught me that are, I now see them saying, oh, no, 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 no. But the inflation this time around, it's not because we're spending too much money. It's because of supply chain things. Uh, so 
do you think modern monetary theories have kind of uh, you know d departed a little bit too much from their own core tenets? Well, I'm Stephanie Kelton's probably the most articulate advocate of MMT, and initially after COVID, she was thrilled with how it was working. And then as inflation started to rear its ugly head, she said, well, you know, they really did it wrong. I mean, frankly, I think they did it exactly the way you know, she wanted to, to be done. But I think that's just the reality of these types of monetary policies. And it's not the first time MMT has been tried. It goes back for, you know, thousands of years, but certainly the centuries, because you could go back to uh, France before the revolution. So, you know, back in the early 1700s, when they first got into trouble, fiscal trouble over there, a guy named John Law from England came over and said, you need to do this thing where you, uh, you know, you have the central bank buy through government debt and drive interest rates down. And I mean, basically what we did, and it created a tremendous asset boom in, in France in the early 1700s. And then, of course, it popped. And it, uh, a lot of people think that's what led to the eventual downfall of the French aristocracy and you know, the French Revolution. So this MMT thing isn't new, but it's new to America. I mean, it's, you know, we, we didn't think we would be engaged in what are basically, you know, we used to consider banana republic uh, types of fiscal and monetary policies. But it, it clearly created a lot of inflation. When you say, was it supply chain? Was it money supply? I'd say it was both. And the combination turned out to be extremely inflationary. And we're still dealing with that. There's there's kind of that residual inflationary pulse that's in the system right now that's proving to be you know, much harder to get down than, than people believed. And I think it's really pretty remarkable. I said earlier, when you've got commodity price, I mean, natural gas at one point a week or so ago was down 75% from the peak here, down even a greater percentage overseas, but still higher than here because it went, you know, natural gas, if you can believe this, in Europe got to almost $600 equivalent in barrel, oil, oil barrel terms. So unbelievable, but it's, you know, it's collapsed. A lot of commodity prices have collapsed and yet we still have a fair amount of inflation, an uncomfortable level of inflation. And that's because it's spread to that services area. And people are getting wage increases, but inflation is still running higher than the wage increases. So people are actually losing purchasing power. That's one of the insidious things of inflation. You create kind of this illusion of prosperity, but you know, we all know how high prices have been at the grocery stores. And do you think uh, rate hikes are an effective tool, a sufficient tool in order to, to fight inflation? Well, that's a really good question. I don't think it gets enough attention because if you think about it, as these interest rates have gone from basically zero to 5%, I mean, if you're sitting in cash at a bank right now, unless you're going to spend it tomorrow, you're, you're pretty crazy. I mean, you really need to get because the banks are paying still nothing. Right. And I think people are waking up. There's a kind of a mass exodus out of banks and money funds, uh, low-yield money funds, sweet money funds, into things like one-year treasuries or money funds that have a, a rate closer to that. So as that happens, as that money shifts, and all of a sudden people are getting much more income from their portfolio, from their savings, you know that theoretically creates more spending power. I don't think it's really very theoretical. So that, in a way, could actually be supporting inflation on a near-term basis. So it, it is a little bit, you know, you can say, well, that's a lag. Eventually it's going to catch up and and then the higher interest rates are going to bite, which I do believe. I think I just don't know how high they have to get. I, I think we could see 6% on the Fed funds rate. And that still would be kind of around the current inflation rate. Now, again, if you normalize and say, well, I think it's more like three to four, then it is a seriously real interest rate. And at that point, it starts to bite because what you start seeing is falling asset prices. You start to get asset deflation. And clearly, housing prices are falling. 
Uh, housing prices in the U.S. are down about 13%. You can say, well, that's off a crazy peak last year, but still, they're falling. Uh, stock prices have obviously been falling. Bond prices have been falling. It was the worst year last year for a balanced portfolio since 1871. That's kind of a long time. So as people take hits with their assets, then they tend to spend less. So, you know, you've got these cross currents. There's so many cross currents out there right now. It's probably one of the most, uh, you know, muddled situations that I've ever seen. And I just actually, we do this newsletter on Mondays called Making Hay Monday. It's free. You can get it, you know, go to the, our uh, Haymaker website at Substack and you can sign up for it. But I did a cheat T-chart of looking at, you know, we'll have a recession, won't have a recession. And a lot of these won't have are coming from our partner firm at Gaukel. Some of the bright people at Gaukel think we're not. I think we will because you've got a deeply inverted yield curve. You know, a lot of people, and maybe I should stop and explain that because a lot of times I say yield curve and people say, what's, what's he talking about? Yield curve? Is this like Christmas? No, Y-I-E-L-D. So like the interest rate curve, yield curve. And when it's inverted, that means short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. That's not the way it normally is. And right now it's very inverted. So you go out one year on a T-bill, you get over 5%. If you go out 30 years on a treasury, it's about 4 That's a deep, deep inversion. So it's not, I think it's a little simplistic just to talk about whether the yield curve is inverted or not. I think the depth of it is, is quite meaningful. And then you've got money supply absolutely collapsing. So the inverse of what we had after the pandemic. And you've got the leading economic indicators down for 10 months in a row. Those things have got pretty much flawless records at predicting recessions. So that's why I'm saying the recession is going to happen, Cam. Right. And if a recession is going to happen, the playbook for, for macro investing is easy. Buy bonds. But you said, unlike other times in your career, you are not buying bonds. Uh, recessions, buying recessions cause in, inflation to fall. Sometimes they cause deflation, right? Why is this not different? Yeah, well, that's, that, well, that's exactly what's really the... I mean, it's so dangerous, as you know, in our business to say this time is different because it very rarely is. So I'm making the argument that this time is at least a little bit different just because I think you're going to have a massive flood of supply of new treasury debt. And it's not just the treasuries. I mean, David Rosenberg, very, very bright economist, probably the most famous economist in Canada, has pointed out the private sector in the U.S. has a trillion dollars of debt that you know, needs to be rolled over over the next year. You combine that with all the money, a lot of that's mortgage debt, and it's including the commercial real estate space, which to me looks like an escalating disaster. Uh, just a, a Blackstone announced that they're defaulting on a $500 million real estate loan. And uh, PIMCO just took a $1.3 billion, over a billion dollar hit anyway, on a, on a real estate deal. And so I think you're starting to see some real chickens come home to roost in, in that uh, commercial real estate area, but also single family. And then you look at multifamily, lots and lots of overbuilding has happened of apartment buildings. So rents are starting to fall. And that's, you know, that's a good thing. That's going to help to... That's going to help to d diminish inflation. So there are some positives out there for inflation for sure. But you know, I think the safer way to play the bond thing is to look at some corporates where you get more of a yield pickup and, and where you can keep your maturities a little shorter. Than I just don't think buying a 30-year treasury in this environment, other than for a trade. And I, I do think there are going to be some trading opportunities with longer-term treasuries. And if we really got rates up enough here over the next month or two, there, there could certainly be a tactical buying opportunity on, on long treasuries. But I don't think it's the typical playbook. And again, I realize that's hazardous to say. Right. And short term, um, do, do you think they're going go higher or lower? Because I don't know if, if uh, bond yields can rally, you know, bond, yields can go down on the 10 year, let's say, 
as the Federal Reserve is hiking. That's that's pretty uh, hard for it to happen. No, I think the trend is still up. I mean, I was pretty skeptical. I mean, kind of talking my book, I, I have maintained a pretty big futures book, and I was uh, I increased my Treasury short position here recently. You know, when they're down more <clears throat> three and a half on the ten year. So yes, I think the trend is is up right now in rates. How long that's going to continue? You know, that's the hard part. I do think that you know the system's fragile, and I, I think there is you know everything's become so financialized and so leveraged. So higher interest rates, you know, probably you know are going to bite pretty hard, and I think that's why you're starting to see some of these blowups in in the commercial real estate market because that was the one that was uh, probably the most vulnerable. The situation over the next twelve months, uh, David, as you describe it, it already sounds pretty dicey. But we we haven't even talked about something else that I'm going to throw in now, which is the potential that commodity prices reaccelerate uh, as, as China re- reopens, uh, and the fact that you can be in a recession and the price of oil can you know can, can double. Um, what what are you seeing there? I, I know you, you spent a lot of work uh, you know, focusing. You talked about the green energy transition, how that could be inflationary, as well as, as well as nuclear energy. So you know whether it's uranium. Natural gas, oil, uh, uh, copper. Uh, what, what do you think there? And, and how does that affect the inflation picture? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, I think that's why this could be a stagflationary environment, similar to the 1970s, where you had you know a couple of pretty nasty recessions in the 70s, but you had, uh, for the most part, uh, commodity prices rising. Now they did have some short-term declines, just like we've had recently, but the trend was up through most of that decade. And you know, if you want to talk about oil, I mean, oil inventories look so low despite the release of uh, you know, millions of barrels of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is now the lowest it's been in 40 years. And then when you look at that adjusted to how much, I mean, oil usage is up something like 60, 70% over the last 40 years. So as a percentage of consumption, it's shockingly low. So I, and you're right, you've got China reopening and China being offline mostly uh, last year was about a million and a half barrel reduction. You've got uh, Russia cutting production voluntarily you know, as a, kind of their thumb the nose at the West type of thing, since they've got all kinds of restrictions. And you've got Europe consuming more oil to replace more expensive forms of energy. And that's very unusual. And you've got uh, OPEC cutting. So you've got I mean, the IEA, which is the International Energy Agency or Administration, which has for years underestimated demand said that even with a recession this year, they think the demand for oil is going to be about 102 million barrels a day. That's likely more than the world can produce. And you've had years and years and years of CapEx starvation in the energy world. So that, uh, you know, that's going to come home. That, the, the fact that you just have not, and we have not globally invested enough in oil production is going to bite and bite pretty hard at some point. Uh, as far as natural gas, I mean, yeah, it collapsed in price, got up to almost 10 in the U.S. Uh, last year. It came down, hit t- two here recently. So that's a monster decline. But it is, is you know, fortunately, we got that one right a couple of weeks ago on our Making Hay Monday, or almost Monday. It was right after uh, President's Day. But you know, it rallied, it's rallied about 30% almost overnight. So I agree with your basic thesis that we're going to see these commodity prices surge again. And that that's going to create a, a real difficult situation for the central banks where they're looking at rising uh, energy prices, even as the economy is weak. And that's what you get. I mean, pretty much all commodities, have, we've had a, a big underinvestment under in them for years and years and years. And you brought up nuclear and uranium is one of my favorite plays. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think, well, there's no way to invest in that. But there actually is. There's a very easy way to do that through the Sprott Physical Uranium ETF, which you probably know about track. But that's uh, 
you know, I think that one's going to explode on the upside at some point here fairly soon. Nuclear power is seeing a real renaissance, uh, and even even the U.S., even the Biden administration is starting to get behind nuclear power. That's quite a turnaround. And uh, so there are uranium miners that, you know, some stocks trade publicly. And then there's the physical commodity, which you can invest in via the this, this, this Sprott Trust, which you mentioned. Uh, why do you prefer, it sounds like you prefer the, the investing in the physical trust. Why do you prefer that over the miners or maybe the um, uh, utilities? Well, yeah, the utilities, I think that's just too indirect a play. The miners are a very direct play. They're actually usually a more leveraged play on rising uranium prices, but they're high right now. That's the, they, don't, they don't look like a great bargain. It's very different than, say, with gold gold miners, where you know, they had a nice rally and then they've been pounded again, at, or the uh, the energy companies where there's been a pretty big uh, correction of late. So that I mean, I think there will be an opportunity. Uh, Cameco is tends to be our go-to name in that space, but it's just a bit pricey right now. So that's why I think the the actual uranium itself looks like it's got a better risk reward profile. David, earlier you mentioned how the move to sustainable energy, green energy, wind, solar is inflationary. And this sort of greenflation argument is one that I've been following for a while and I'm really interested in. Uh, the typical uh, argument that you'll hear, David, um, is that, oh, if the price of, if we have a supply crisis in oil, the price of oil goes to 200 bucks. That is going to incentivize people to move away from oil. So they'll, you know, sell their their Jeep and they'll buy a Tesla. Uh, to what degree is that true, and, and what does that miss? No, I think it is true. If you got prices up really, really high, that that would tend to encourage people to shift more to, you know, EVs, for example. But you know, EVs have got some serious challenges, and I think the, the biggest challenge the EVs really have is the grid. And the fragility of the U.S. grid, which is getting more so all the time. And so if you're going to put millions and millions of additional EVs on that grid, it's going to become, it's going to go out more frequently. And then, you know, people are going to be unhappy if they can't charge their car. And if you've got solar panels on your house and you're, you're kind of off grid, I think an EV makes a lot of sense. But that's a that's a pretty expensive proposition. And the other challenge with, with a lot of the renewable uh power sources is the so many of the critical inputs are uh, come from China, very reliant on China. And that's that's a scary thought. And then you've got, you know, the cobalt issue and all the, you know, the, the human uh, kind of the human downside of the way cobalt is mined with the exploitation of a lot of young miners over in Africa. And it's, uh, you know, there's there's no perfect form of energy. Even nuclear, which has certainly got the best bang for the buck, is not perfect, but uh, it has a lot of attractions. And one of the things that's becoming, uh, I think, getting ready for prime time are small modular nuclear reactors, which eliminate a lot of the the issues with nuclear power. And even the Biden administration with the IRA, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, is, is allocating significant money to that direction. And that is, as I said earlier, a radical shift. But in general, I, I think that you, whenever you're going from a more energy dense source to a less energy dense source, you are creating inherent inflation. And you're also creating lack of reliability. So you have to have backup. And that's, that's kind of the dirty little secret of a lot of renewable energy is that it needs to have like a natural gas backup for when it, it doesn't function. It doesn't really work great for baseload power basically, is, is my point about renewable. And, you know, one of the tragedies of this, and you're, you're certainly aware of this, Jack, is what's happening to coal demand. Coal demand is at an all-time high level. 
And there's no, well, there's one dirtier form of power than coal, and that's wood, which Europe is burning like crazy, importing it from the United States and burning it over there. And that emits even more effluence into the atmosphere. Yeah. And if, you know, we have natural gas, which that's how the U.S. air quality has improved 75% over the last 50 years. You can go to the EPI, EPA website and see that. And a lot of that is because we've shifted heavily from coal to natural gas in this country. But the rest of the world, unfortunately, is, is heavily embracing coal right now. That's not good. David, you, earlier you talked about um, uh, sort of small, smaller nuclear reactors. Is there any publicly traded stocks that... Uh offer exposure to, to that? There really aren't any direct ways to play that publicly. I have invested personally in a private company called Micronuclear that's a bunch of ex-Navy nuke guys. Because if you think about it, it's been used so successfully and safely to propel, to propel uh, aircraft carriers and subs going all the way back to the 1950s. So it's, it's, it's a proven technology. And this particular company has been able to take that uh, that basic technology and, and improve it and eliminate some of the vulnerabilities. But it's also very efficient in terms of recycling the nuclear fuel at the end of the 10-year battery life. And, but it's it's high risk. I mean, none, there hasn't been a single small modular nuclear reactor that's gone into the field, talking about actually into operation, uh, to be able to prove, you know, do what they call first fission. So it's, it's been a very difficult, a lot of it's because of regulatory opposition. And I think that's why it's important to have the administration now really kind of trying to fast track this. I mean, you saw that in Europe where, I mean, they were so opposed to LNG facilities and the bureaucratic obstacles were enormous. And then, you know, last year they realized they had an existential crisis and man, they got things built in, you know, offshore LNG floating facilities almost overnight. So it shows when people kind of wake up and they realize how dire the situation is that you can have some amazing breakthroughs, but we haven't gotten to that point in this country yet. I think we're going to. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, Lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Going back to the macro, sounds like a, a pretty thorny uh, year or two ahead of us. How do you think about investing in this period, about asset allocation? You know, last year was the worst year since uh, 1871 for the 6040. Uh, you know, if we have a recession approaching, like you think we could, normally you go seek safety in bonds. Now that's not the time you're actually short bonds. So what are you doing besides shorting bonds? Well, we are looking at corporates. We actually bought a lot of corporates last fall because you had the combination, which is great for a buyer, of rising interest rates and expanding credit spreads. And I know you know what credit spreads are, but a lot of listeners don't. And that's the difference between what corporations pay to borrow money and what the government pays. So that really drove a lot of uh, a lot of corporate bonds down severely. 
So we were getting yields in the six, seven, eight, nine percent zone, and many of those have, because interest rates now they're they're back up and they're still down a bit from where they were. And credit spreads are definitely narrower, though they too are expanding. But a lot of those bonds have had equity-like returns since last fall. So I think if you're alert and you're dexterous and you you know you go into these areas when they get hit hard, you can create some nice total return situations. But if nothing else, great cash flow. One of our favorite bonds has a yield of 8.6, 8.7% right now in kind of an intermediate term maturity. And we think a very strong credit story. And so that's one of the things we do in my newsletter on Mondays, the making a Monday is that we, because I don't think most newsletters really pay attention to the income side. Almost everybody's focused on growth, you know, picking hot stocks. And we certainly do that stocks we like, but we have a, a number of income recommendations. And particularly for people that are more mature, like myself, you know, cash flow is kind of critical. And and that's the great news about what we've gone through is these much higher yields give you a chance to get some cash flow you can actually live on. Now, if you say, well, inflation's going to stay at six, I admit that even an 8.7% yield is not that great, but I don't think inflation is going to stay at six. I think we are going to have dips and then reaccelerations, and it's just going to be you know, volatile inflation, volatile interest rates, volatile stock market. So I think if, the problem, I think, is that most people are so wedded to indexing and indexing is such a buy and hold, non-responsive way of investing, that they're not going to be able to take advantage of this volatility. So that's, I think there's going to be some great opportunities and there already are some things that look pretty attractive out there right now. I, I love macro and I can tell you do too. Uh, so you know, I've asked you, do you like stocks? Do you not like stocks? You're, you know, I'm asking really about the S&P 500. But I like individual names from, from my own part. Sometimes it, it's more tough because, you know, the audience doesn't know a, a particular issue. You don't want to seem like you're, you're pumping or, you know, you're bashing it if, if you're short or something like that. But, um, you know, with the caveat that, of course, nothing you or I say is investment advice. Uh, what are some like in, individual uh, names that you're looking at if you, if you feel comfortable sharing? Well, to be specific on the bond I just recommended, that's the Bath and Body Works bonds which I think one of the reasons they trade as inexpensively they do is people confuse it with Bed Bath & Beyond, which is likely headed to Chapter 11. Certainly, it's a very fragile situation. Uh, so that's a specific name that we like in the bond area. In the stock area, and again, you know, everybody should, you should be highly diversified. And, and I, my fear is we throw out names that people put you know, too much money in. I, you know, typically, what we recommend is that you start with a maximum position of 1% of your portfolio value and, and even less in, in a market like this, which is very volatile, and then be willing to dollar cost average into it. And, it, you know, so with that as kind of a caveat, uh, I do think Bristol Myers is quite attractive here. Uh, one of the things I like to see is companies that are breaking out over multi-year resistance points. Uh, you know, we're a big believer in that. Uh, this is what Paul Peter Jones calls range expansions. And we found that three years is kind of the magic time frame. If something has been in a range for three years and suddenly it breaks out over that, that's a really strong buy signal. But, you know, you should also look at the fundamental story. Bristol-Myers sells for about nine times earnings. They've got about nine very potentially blockbuster-type drugs uh, in their system, you know, late stage, either approved or close to approval. Uh, yields a little bit over 3%. It keeps making new all-time highs, not just three-year highs, but new all-time highs. It's had a nice little pullback here lately. So that's a name that, uh, that we like that's got momentum behind it. Uh, Tyson's, Tyson's Foods is another one. Tyson Foods is another one that we would recommend. And I should say that our Evergreen clients already own these, in some cases at lower prices than where they are currently. So just be aware of that. And I do own these names personally as well, because I do own what our clients own. 
But uh, TSN's down about 40%. Oh, well, actually over 40%. It's selling for about seven times trailing earnings, but earnings will be down this year for what you know I think are just kind of transitory reasons. Uh, so it's trading about 13 times what I think are trough earnings. That's a very low multiple for trough earnings. If you look historically, even though earnings are volatile, they have had a very pronounced upward trend over the years and people need food. And I think, you know, kind of to your point earlier, I think we're going to have some recurring food shortages, but there actually was kind of a glut of, of beef because beef prices got high, consumers backed off and the feed prices went way up. So their margins really got squeezed, but now actually feed prices are coming down pretty significantly. And so, you know, I think that's a, that's a pretty attractive name. I think Apache in the energy area, it's had a decent pullback sells for about, um, about five times earnings, six times earnings. It's got a free cash flow yield of uh, you know, mid-teens right now and a very promising, very large discovery uh, in Suriname off the, the north coast of South America. So there's a few ideas that I think you, know, you can hide out in and, and if they go down and you know just buy a little bit, but then if they go down, buy more. I'm a big fan of dollar cost averaging. I think people would say, oh, I, I want to, if I like it, I'm going to just you know go max to begin with. I think that's pretty risky. If you do that, I think you really need to focus on companies that are breaking out of a trading range. Right. I, I think understanding the fundamental story is so important because if you buy something that you think is cheap and uh, you know will re return capital that is you know, at a good rate, a high quality business, and then it goes down 30%, if you understand the business, you'll have the confidence to stick in that position and maybe even buy more. Whereas if you just bought it because you, know, you heard about it from a friend, then you might sell. And uh, yeah, so I, I think, okay. So the book, I know you said you're not a passive index uh, guy necessarily, but uh, what do you generally, you know, generally how do you think stocks will perform? What's your, was your midterm, you know, three, six, 12 month outlook. And you can, you know, either stick with the broad index or you can go sector by sector, or you can say, oh, I like this name. I don't like this name. However you want to take it. Well, as far as the market overall goes, my, overarching view is that we have been going through a bear market rally that started in October. There was a, a December was rough. So there was definitely a correction in December, then a very powerful January, and then you know, now another downturn. And so I think we're in the midst of the correction of the most recent bear market rally. I think we're going to go back to the October lows. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if we break them. And part of it is, I think, you know, you can debate about an actual recession, but I think the odds of an earnings recession are almost 100%. In fact, I think at the end of this quarter, it'll be acknowledged that we actually did have an earnings recession. And that, as a stock investor, that probably matters to you the most. You know, what are earnings doing, not necessarily what's the stock or what's the economy doing? And I actually think you could have a fairly strong nominal economy because of inflation and a, and a real recession, which is kind of an odd thing. But again, that's a flashback to the 1970s as well. So I think you've got another down leg. It could be surprisingly nasty. Uh, what's, what's amazing about this one and, and why I think people are mistaken to think the worst is over is the way retail investors have reacted to the decline. I mean, they've been pouring money in this year at a record rate. So there's absolutely no sign of capitulation. Uh, Kathy Wood, despite all of her travails, she's actually had inflows into the ARC complex. So it's that's not what signifies the bottom of bear markets. Another thing is that bear markets historically don't bottom until the Fed is about two-thirds of the way through an easing cycle. And we're not even done with the tightening cycle. Oh, it's it's possible that the market doesn't bottom until next year. I don't know. I, I I think the faster and more it goes down, the more likely it puts in a bottom. But 
the, you know, that's not been the history of this market. It, it fights tooth and nail to, to, you know, to get back to the bull market that was so good to people for so many years. And I think that's a lot of what's going on. I think that's why money, when people are bullish, they just go right back to the stuff that was, you know, the, the stars during the, especially during the post pandemic period when all that free money was created. So, you know, and also to look at the quality of this rally, it's been a very junky rally. It's been the profitless tech that's been leading, the most shorted stocks have been leading. That's Carvana. not healthy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so when you say an earnings recession, do you, do you think that means like for the, the fourth quarter of 2022, you think those earnings will be, you know, is it just the rate of growth is going down or is it literally negative? Year negative, year? negative. It went negative uh, Q4. It's going to, I'm almost positive it's going to be negative Q1 of this year. And last year, the only reason the earnings weren't worse is because energy, energy earnings were just huge. And as you know, the energy sector itself was up 60%, not one six, but 60% in a year when the S&P was down 18%, reflecting those unbelievably strong earnings that these guys reported. But now they've got a high bar. And I'm not nearly as bullish on energy as I was. I, mean, I think an Apache can go from you know, 40 to 50, 55, 60, but the really big money in energy has been made. Uh, so what do you think uh, is some of the most overvalued stocks in the energy sector? Well, I don't know that I would say, well, maybe some of the green energy names, although they've been getting hit of late. So uh, I don't know. I, I don't think you're really going to get too badly beat up on an Exxon or a Chevron, but we actually prefer companies like BP and Shell which are more European blue chip energy because they trade at a much, I mean, like half the valuation of the, uh, the big U.S. oil companies. And, and their, the valuation discrepancy is so great, I think you could even see, say, uh, Exxon go after Shell. Shell's got a fantastic, probably the best LNG business, liquefied natural gas business in the world. So that's, uh, that's, not, that's not very critical of uh, energy. I just... I, as I said, I think the easiest money, the biggest money's already been made. You just have to be realistic that they're not going to report the kind of earnings increases for now. Now, I do think we're going to get another up move in, in oil. I think oil is going to get triple digits. Wouldn't surprise me at all if it's $120 a barrel. So then you could get another up leg. But with oil kind of bouncing in the 70s to the low 80s and, and natural gas having been hit as hard as it has, I mean, you're starting to see natural gas producers take rigs offline. And the opposite of what we thought would be happening with this tremendous uh, natural gas shortage in Europe, which, again, I think that shortage is going to flare up again. They were getting almost half of their natural gas from Russia. Most of that's been shut off and it's not coming back online anytime soon. Right. Uh, but the price of natural gas has collapsed because Europe was buying it hand over foot. But you know, now they have the storage, at least for now. And I think uh, last year, natural gas prices exploded higher. Oil prices exploded higher. Oil companies, they're called oil and gas for a reason. When you drill oil, you get gas. When you do gas, you get oil. Sometimes it's, you know, it's, and it's a different uh, um, mix. But I think now there's really a focus on, are you an oil company or are you a gas company? Because gas is kind of an unprofitable business for now. At, at $2, uh, uh, um, $2 for Henry Hub, it's very hard to make money, um, whereas oil still is profitable. So are you preferring those you know, kind of oil-only names or, you know, where it's a 70 80% oil as opposed to those gas names? Not really. I like them both uh, because the natural gas stock prices have come down really hard as a result of the, the price. Not as much as the price didn't go up as fast and they didn't come down as much. But, uh, you know, one of the things about natural gas is that it is and it's it's like 
Uh, I don't want to get too technical, but the, the, the curve, the pricing curve, you, you know, contango and you know, backwardation. So contango is the normal slope. So that's like a normally sloped yield curve, contango. So that means the current price is lower than the futures price. And right now in natural gas, it's huge contango. So, and I'm doing this a little off the top. I haven't looked real lately, but like the current is 275 and a year out is like 375. The point is that these producers, if they want to, because they can make a lot of money at 375. Now they can make a lot more money at 575 or, you know, eight or $9. So they're not going to do this completely because I think they believe there's another big spike coming too, but they can lock in 375 gas in the futures market and do very well. A lot of them do have hedges in place at much higher prices than where we are currently. So that's something to think. Now, oil is very different. Oil is backwardation. So it's like the yield curve. So that means that the current prices are actually higher than the further out prices, somewhere around five to six dollars a barrel over a course of a year. So that's, you know, if, if you're going to if you want to be an investor in, in crude oil right now, and there are ETFs out there that do that. USO is a way that you and normally USO is not great. It's kind of like the VIX thing. You just get clobbered by the, the negative carrier, the roll cost. But in this case, you actually get paid. So that's why you know, oil wasn't up all that much last year, a few percent, and, and the USO returned something like, I think it was 29%, really close to that. So, you know, again, these are kind of nuances that, that especially if you're an index investor who doesn't think, you just kind of leave these, you know, this, this money on the sidelines, which is unfortunate. There are opportunities. There is, if you're a thinking investor, and especially with so much of the world that doesn't think anymore, there are some extraordinary opportunities that come up time, from time to time. Absolutely. I'm, I want to put my thinking hat on and, and attempt to uh, ex explain, explain what you just said, which is uh, so people can Google UVXY and they'll see a chart, UVXY stock. Uh, it's, it's like a VIX ETF and then press max and then they'll see it's down 100 percent since it was started in 2010 or 2011. And the reason is because the VIX is very frequently in contango, meaning uh, you're buying it at 22 and then in a month it's going to be 23. So you sell the 20, uh, 22 and you buy the 23. So you're always sort of just being ground down every single day. And when oil is in contango, it's the exact same thing. And that's why when the price of oil collapsed and actually went negative in April of 2020, uh, people lost a ton of money. And that's why USO went down something like 60% 60, 60 or something around there in a few times. And I actually think whether it was the SEC or some other government regulation uh, mandated that the USO now owned a, a blended... Uh, series. They don't just own the front month, so that can't happen again. So they own different things. So yeah, uh, now, now it's the opposite of backwardation. You're, you're, being, you're being paid. Um, I, I think that's a, a really good point. Okay. So other than energy, you like energy, but nowhere near as much as you like it, like, liked it last year. Are there any other sectors that, that you like? Uh, what, what's your second favorite sector or favorite sector? And what's your least favorite sector going forward? Well, I've been really negative on utilities, but utilities have been underperforming. And the idea was that, you know, they were trading at relatively low yields and made a new all-time high despite the fact that interest rates were, were already up. And as we've already talked about, they've gone down, but come back up once more. So that's been an unattractive area. I haven't liked small cap growth where you tend to have a lot of money losers, very aggressive names. So those have been you know, kind of disfavored areas. As far as other areas that I like, I would say probably more international than U.S. There, I don't think there's a lot of U.S. sectors that look super attractive right now. I mean, financials would be kind of, a would say, well, it's fairly cheap and the uh, rising interest rates are good for them, but an inverted yield curve really isn't. I mean, for banks, that's a challenge. And I also worry that people are finally waking up, as we talked about earlier, and they're, they're getting out of these no yield deposits 
and taking the money, you know, directly to the, you know, the treasury market or even the banks are finally reluctantly increasing yields on CDs. So they're losing this very low cost source of funding that they had. And then, of course, their bonds have been crushed. So they've got major losses in their investment portfolio, which they're trying not to recognize, of course. You've also got uh, accelerating loan losses. And, you know, we talked about some of these commercial real estate hits that have happened. And so I look at that and, you know, because there's, otherwise there's a fair amount to like about the financials. But I think for right now, I'd be a little bit leery and looking at ones that don't have some of those risks that I just mentioned. But I think the Japanese market's interesting. It's it's underperformed for you know decades, obviously, you know, after their huge uh, bubble of the late 80s. And you can get, you know, good quality companies at 10, 12, 13 times earnings and deep, you know, low, low price to sales. I mean, oftentimes at 0.5 to sales rather than two or three or four times in the United States. But, you know, they haven't really covered themselves in glory with their long-term earnings performance, but they are getting more profit focused in Japan. So that's uh, that's a positive thing. Korea looks pretty attractive. It's really been beat up. And some of these countries I think will benefit as people are reluctant to be in China. So they want Asian exposure, but they really don't want to get it through China. I think Singapore, there's a Singapore ETF. I think Singapore is a winner as uh, people and businesses flee from Hong Kong to Singapore. I think Singapore is becoming kind of the Switzerland of Asia. So there's a few ideas that are, look decent. David, I've, I've got a lot more questions for you. Before I ask them, just tell me about Evergreen uh, Golf Call. Is that related to Golf Call? And then your, your uh, newsletter on Substack, the, the Haymaker. Why do you, you start that and what do you write about? So first of all, GovCal, yes, that's our partner firm. Louis Gov was the founder, along with his uh, his father, Charles Gov, and Anatole Kolecki, hence the name GovCal. And uh, Louis is one of my very closest friends. We do a research call almost every week uh, with analysts all over the world. So again, we've got, you know, if you're, if you're going to try to be a thinking investor, you better have some great allies and resources. Unfortunately, we do. You know, I, I, you're aware they're one of the most highly respected macroeconomic uh, research firms on the planet. Uh, just a plethora of major money managers are their clients. So that's uh, that's definitely a, a benefit to us as a firm. But we basically at Evergreen are, you know, we're old fashioned money managers. We do the research on individual companies, whether it's their stocks or bonds. I think we have an unusual focus on income generation because we have a lot of older clients, but also a lot of wealthy people that say, hey, I made my money. I don't want to lose it. I want cash flow on it. So that's that's why we have uh, more assets actually invested for yield than we do for growth. But we do have a lot of growth and we have some aggressive growth strategies and we've got some conservative growth strategies. And so it's a you know, quite a diverse op- offering. We've got about four billion in assets under management just on the evergreen side. As far as the haymaker goes, that's kind of my later in life. You know, I've been doing this since 1979. So I started many, many presidents ago and it's really been my desire to get into writing even more. I published my original newsletter since 2005. It was the housing bubble back then that really motivated me to start writing my newsletters, calling that out. But uh, now we're we're actually publishing more. And plus I do events like this, podcasts like this. And so, you know, as I look at my, my schedule, more and more of it is going towards Haymaker, but I'm still very involved with Evergreen. And it gives me, I mean, I think a lot of people that write newsletters, they don't manage money. Yes. And having managed money and, you know, made a lot of mistakes and learned what to do, and what not to do. And I still make mistakes. But, you know, just like I said earlier, one of the things that one takeaway I would tell your listeners that I think is the most critical is pay attention to these breakouts and breakdowns. So when something breaks below a three year range, a trading range, 
you better look at that really hard. The odds are you want to get out. You can come back in, but the odds are it's going lower. So, David, you bought your first stock in 1971. You officially got into business in 1979. That's when you're running your fund. Two years later, this guy comes around. His name is Paul Volcker. Inflation's very hot, and he jacks interest rates up. And uh, you know the prices of, of bonds. He imposes an enormous amount of losses to the financial system, particularly holders of government paper and, and bonds. Uh, the stock market uh, sold off, but uh, you know only about you know about thirty percent. Uh, tell me, just take us back. What was it like to invest at that time in nineteen seventy nine? What were the big things? If you know, everyone right now is talking about AI or electric vehicles, or you know, now they're talking about the Fed. Uh, you know, fortunately because of the interest rate hikes. What was what was the hot topic in the investing world in nineteen seventy nine? You know, as a young man in the business, what were you keen to to learn more about? And just yeah, that's take us from nineteen seventy nine to to, to nineteen eighty one when the the interest rate hikes uh, exploded. Yeah, yeah, I remember it well. I mean, you know, at that time because we'd had two energy crises, that's where the first two, uh, oil and gas stocks were red hot. And gold was hot as well. Gold hit $800 an ounce back then, which you know had, was up from $35 an ounce in 1971 when Nixon took us off the gold standard. So it had been the inflation hedges that were really where people wanted to be at that time. And bonds were known as certificates of confiscation because they all they did for decades was lose money with a few trading rallies along the way. So it was a very tough time to be a bond investor. And frankly, I didn't really believe that bonds were very attractive either. But by the time you got to where Volcker really was, I mean, you got the prime rate over 20%. I literally remember buying CDs for clients at rates over 20%. Wow. You can imagine. I remember buying tax-free bonds yielding 14%. <laughs> oh, my so God. It did dawn on me in 1981. That's when I first became a bond market bull, was I said, this guy means business. And he's got you know these interest rates way above inflation. And even though I was not very skilled macro from a macroeconomic standpoint at that at that time, I realized this was going to bring inflation down and interest rates down. And the yield curve was inverted. So it was a tough sell to, you know, back then I wasn't a money manager. I was a you know, smiling, dialing broker. So I had to get people's agreement to do things. It was very hard to get clients to agree to go further out to get less yield. I remember a client vividly saying, why do I want to take only 14% on a five-year CD? Then I can get 20% on a one-year CD in it's that that one year CD is going to mature and you're not going to be getting anywhere near that. And so really, that was the beginning of my bond bull phase of my career, which dominated, you know, again, really the time I, I, I threw in the towel and went the other way was in the summer of 2020. So like August of 2020, when the 10 year Treasury note got down to a half a percent, 50 basis points. And I remember when it was 15 percent. And inflation was starting to, you know, to, to, you know, by the summer 2020, it was still fairly low, but you could see which way it was trending and we were doing full blown MMT. So anyway, that's when I really became a bond market bearer. And that's one reason why our income portfolios have done as well as they've done is that, you know, we, we were hiding out in a lot of floating rate securities and short term. Anyway, so very different situation when I first started out. I guess you could say in the early years, it was kind of similar, but I mean, Volcker came in in 79, so he was already starting to jack rates up, but it was 1981 where he really went ballistic, and that changed everything. But once the rates started coming down in 1982, that's when the great bull market was born, both in bonds and stocks. It's been 40 years of riding the wave that he basically put in place, but it's almost like the photographic negative of that now, and I don't think most people quite appreciate how drastically things have shifted. So there was a time you realized 
Volcker means business. He's going to hike until inflation falls. Does Powell mean business? Well, another excellent question by by you, Jack. And you know, he's he's apparently told everybody around the, the Merrill Eccles building of the, the Fed's headquarters that he doesn't want to go down as in history books as the the second coming of Arthur Burns, who's the one that really let inflation get out of control in the seventies. He wants to be seen as the new Paul Volcker, but you know, that's going to be tough because even Arthur Burns is is because he was under a tremendous amount of pressure from Nixon not to raise interest rates. Uh, but he at least would get, even when in 1974, when inflation got up, you know, nine, 10%, he got the Fed funds rate up above that. Not a lot, but a little bit. And, and you could have argued, well, that was a, you know, transitory. You know, there was an energy crisis there. It's not going to stay up at that level. You know, why aren't you looking at what, you know, more sustainable inflation is and go to a lower level? But at least he got it above, you know, what was peak inflation. And Powell still has done that. Now, he's playing a game that you know, he could be right that inflation is going to start falling really rapidly. But we're already seeing that it's it's hard to get it down when it's been running hot for as long as it has. So does he have to go to 8 percent on the Fed funds rate? Maybe. I don't think so. I think six is probably going to be enough because you know, what Volcker had going for him that, that Powell doesn't have is the U.S. debt to GDP in 1979 was about 25 percent. We're you know, put 100% on top of that. We're about 125, maybe 120 right now. So we are so leveraged that as you raise these interest rates up and, and the, you know, the government's paying through the nose as these rate increases start to filter in as their death, debt rolls over and they have to, you know, pay higher and higher rates. Plus you got the Fed, there's about 5 trillion that's on, on, on deposit at the Fed that they're having to pay, you know, close to five, well, four, 4.3, I guess right now, but headed to five almost for sure. So it's costing the, the government a ton of money uh, to be looking at these higher interest rates. So that's making the deficits worse too. And you've got all the entitlements that are really coming on because of the aging of people like me that are, you know, I don't get social security, but I could take it. But, you know, that's there's like $2.6 trillion of entitlements that are now on budget that have been, you know, off budget for so many years, you know, with this terrible accounting that we've done. And, so, yeah, a lot of chicken hoes are coming home to roost, as I said earlier, and they aren't very appetizing chickens, unfortunately. Hey there. Sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto. Some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code GUIDANCE10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. You know, throughout your career, you've been working with clients uh, to help them grow their income, you know, increase wealth, uh, capital gains, and you've seen a lot of behavior patterns of clients. They get in, they get out, you know, greed, fear, the, the whole nine yards. What would your be, advice be for investors of like behavioral mistakes to avoid? Because 
you know, it's not all about being right in this business. You know, it sounds like you had great timing in 1981, getting into bonds, getting out of bonds in 2020. But it's about, you know, you can be right and have bad behaviors and, and your results will be uh, much worse than someone who is wrong, but they, they uh, you know, they stick with it and have good behaviors. So what is sort of like the worst behavioral uh, activity of, of investors that has been like the, the most wealth, the most wealth, what's the most wealth destructive habit you've seen and, and how can uh, my viewers avoid it? Yeah, excellent setup. I would say one of the things that we've noticed as a team is that the clients that are constantly checking their portfolios, like every day or multiple times a day, they're the ones that get the worst results. The clients that say, you know, I really don't look very often, you know, kind of occasionally check and, you know, they have faith in us. Now, obviously, you got to know why you have faith in your advisor, but, uh, you know, and you see that people jumping around, we call it chasing the hot dot, you know, going to oh, look at the performance, you know, this manager has had or this asset class has had. And, and invariably, you know, when they go and make that shift, they're doing it at the wrong time. We call that wrong cycle investing. We actually have an ETF based strategy called right cycle investing. We're trying to get the cycles to work in your favor rather than against you. Oh, and, really? You, know, you see wow. this all the time. So one of the things that we do is we track mutual fund inflows because mutual fund and outflows because mutual fund investors especially a certain cohort who get picked up in this data tend to be kind of ADHD. You know, they're, they're really after, you know, trying to be where the hot, hot money is and get the quick returns. And so you can see that when they're kind of in mass going one way or the other, you, you know, they'll, they'll be right for a while. And that's part of the, I think the deception part of the ruse is that that near-term performance leads them to put even more. You saw this in the late nineties with tech. You saw this, uh, you know, 2021 with all the crazy meme stocks and things is that as this stuff goes vertical, it just sucks in enormous amounts of money. And then these things implode and people, you know, instead of even if it just goes back to where they first got in because they put more money in, then they have losses. And you, know, you the latecomers, of course, are the ones that get absolutely nuked. And so that's that's a really bad characteristic, you know, wrong cycle investing, which we see play out time and time and time again. In the way to make money, I mean, you look at the people who are really wealthy, like Warren Buffett, and the way they've made their money is being a contrarian. And it takes patience, it takes fortitude, it takes understanding balance sheets and financial and income statements. And, you know, that's, that's a very different approach to the way most people do it. Most people don't understand, really. They understand so little about the financial markets. And they'll admit that if you, you know, really ask them. And even smart people, because it, our business is complex and in many ways it's counterintuitive. I think it's that counterintuitive nature that is especially tough for most people. So what do they do? They default to performance. So they go, well, I really don't understand. But what I know is this account is up 30%. This account's down 10. I'm going to get out of the one that's up uh, down 10 and go into the one that's up 30. And that that is a just such a, a powerful human tendency. And that is, I think, the biggest wealth destructor, along with listening to, you know, friends, you know, your brother-in-law at a cocktail party bragging about how well he's doing and saying, well, God, I can't stand to have my brother-in-law doing better than me. I better do what he's doing. And you know, that's just another big wealth destroyer, frankly. Yes, definitely. And uh, making complex wealth decisions based on something you hear that you don't fully understand. I, I totally agree with you. David, there's no better uh, example of the phenomenon you said, performance chasing, than, than three words money weighted returns and there's this is no comment on this the strategy of arc at, at all uh not at all reviewing that but if you look at the you know, arc innovation etf arkk i think it was started in 2014 and you compare it to the nasdaq uh it's you know by a large margin drastically underperformed the nasdaq uh although you know 
a year and a half ago, it had drastically outperformed the NASDAQ. However, that is just the actual ETF. Money-weighted returns, uh, the, the chart that you don't see, the chart that, you know, I don't even know how to make that chart, but I know that chart is way worse. Explain that phenomenon and explain how that phenomenon hurt investors, even, even some of the most successful uh, investors, such as Peter Lynch. Well, you're exactly right. And the example I cite, and you can look this up, anybody can look this up, is the number one performing mutual fund of the decade from 2000 to 2009 was the CGM Focus Fund at that time run by Ken Huber. He had great numbers, but they were, I mean, he was up something like 12%, like low double digits at a time when that was the lost decade for stocks. So stocks actually lost money over that decade for people who think that can't happen because part of the reason it did, it was so overvalued going into that decade. Just very similar to what we had happened this decade. But uh, that fund did great, but yet the actual investors in it lost money because of when they bought it. He had high, he had high returns, but very volatile returns. And that's been one of my big beasts, frankly. I'm going a little bit afield, but it's very relevant with cryptos, is that cryptos, I mean, if you got in early with Bitcoin, you're still way, way, way up. But most people didn't. Most people come in after it's already gone nuts because they hear all the stories and they just can't help it. They can't resist anymore. And then they just get crushed and then they get out. And so you're exactly right that if you look, and I think Kathy Woods still had a really, had really good numbers for, you know, when she first started, but at that time, the amount of money she was managing was very small. So as the money flooded in, that's when it became harder to, to make big profits and then actually it became big losses. So, you're exactly right. That's a hugely important point. And it really gets to what I was saying earlier is that, you know, this tendency to go where, you know, all the action is and where the easy money seems to be being made is so powerful. And I think as an investor, you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, do I really have the fortitude to resist that? And I tell people in the cryptos that what you should do is when these things go nuts, when they're you know just going straight up, as they often do, take some money off the table. If it goes up, you know, 50 percent, Sell at least 30% of what you got. If it goes up another 50%, sell another 30%. Just be methodical on the dollar cost averaging on the sell side. People kind of buy into that on the buy side, but they, they ignore that on the sell side. And when you get into these bubble situations, that's, you know, that's a gift if you react properly. If you react improperly and you put more money in into a bubble, you're going to get crushed. And that's what most people do, unfortunately. So how do you apply that framework to now where almost no one is making money on, on the long side, except for oil. What is the crowded trade now? I mean, I, I suppose it would be energy. Well, I, I don't think there's any question. The crowded trade is this, you know, I, I think uh, I read this in the Financial Times the other day that this is, uh, you know, the, uh, the markets are alive with the sound of bubble 2.0, an echo bubble. Echo bubble is actually a term you use. We are in an echo bubble from what I think was, you know, I wrote a book called Bubble 3.0 about the bubble that that inflated to immense proportions in 2021. I think 2021 was clearly peak insanity. I mean, that's when the meme stocks, and that's when we had GameStop that stopped that went from five bucks to 480 at the peak, and you know, so many other companies of that that nature, AMC and Bed Bath and Beyond and Hertz, and I mean, it was the meme stocks were just in fuego, and they, uh, you know, when they they burst, they were the, really the first ones to burst. You still had until kind of the the third quarter of 2021, more of the, what I, I used to call them the crazy overpriced stocks, the cops. And they were, a lot of them were profitless technology companies with really sexy stories that were trading at 30, 40, 50 times sales, not earnings, sales. 
And it was just a matter of time before the trap door opened up on those things. So yet we've had, you know, this echo bubble here recently, because as I said earlier, this is what's been driving the market here recently. And I think that stuff's got another downlink. I went through, I remember vividly, I mean, I was very negative on the tech bubble in the late 90s. And in late 2000, 2000, early 2001, so, you know, the tech bubble really hit its crescendo at the, in the first quarter of 2000. So a little, you know, like a, a nine to 12 months later, there was a massive rally and it led people to believe the tech bear market was over. And they once again went charging in there and then it went down another 50% or so. I mean, the, tech, the NASDAQ from 2000 to 2003 was down almost 80%. Not much different than what happened in the early 30s. <clears throat> so, you know, you get these enormous bubbles, you get the enormous busts. We've only had part, partial busts so far, given the magnitude of the bubble that inflated and really hit its crescendo in 2021. So, I mean, to your listeners, I would just be saying, be very careful out there. You, you know, you're not going to lose much money in a Bristol Myers, but if you buy some of these really, you know, high, high multiple names that many of them are still trading over 10 times sales and 10 times sales, that's, that's classic bubble territory. So and be very judicious out there right now. There are businesses that can justify a high multiple if they have you know, very high gross margins, high return on, on equity, uh, stuff like that. You know, they're growing very rapidly. But if you have a company that it's not really that good of a business and it's like, let's say it's a it's a it's a lending business. But suddenly they say, we're not a lending business. We're a technology platform. And right. then they get 20 times sales. And that's where I think a lot of the, the pain has been. So so you think there's another down leg in the in those in those stocks? Absolutely. And, you know, high interest rates are, you know, they don't really hurt some of these companies, you know, like a Tyson Foods or a Bristol Myers, but the high PE stocks are by definition, high, a long duration assets. So long duration, long maturity assets, even though they're not bonds, but they, they trade like that because their, their future earnings are so far out. Uh, higher interest rates are, you know, kryptonite to these things. So since right. I think interest rate, I mean, our interest rates have already, I mean, that's not, I think interest rates have gone up at one of the fastest rates ever. You could say, well, they're still too low, which means they probably have to go up further. That's not good news for if you're betting on the, you know, the real nutty stuff that's had a, a second coming, a, you know, a bit of a Lazarus like, uh, you know, rise from the dead here recently. But I think it, they're headed back to the tomb. We'll leave it there. David, thank you so much for sharing your insights uh, with me. Welcome, and Jack. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Hey, thanks for the invite. Hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, me too. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.